Amen. Well, good morning, church, and we're glad that you're here. It's a blessing to be able to worship with all of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. We're going to continue our study through the book of Ephesians, and our topic this morning is spiritual warfare. And while this at first glance might seem disconnected in, in some way from the current situation in light of the tragic situation from last Sunday, I'm convinced in my heart that this is the message that God has prepared for us to hear this morning. I'm convinced that this is the message that we need to hear this morning. You see, because even now as we gather together in this place to worship, even now as we sit in the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the reality is that the enemy does not cease to whisper lies and half-truths into our hearts and our minds. The enemy is ruthless and unsympathetic to the plight of God's people, and he will use any situation and he will use any occasion to pour from his mouth a river of lies, a river of accusation, a river of deceit and condemnation in hopes of devouring you and your faith. See, this is where we find ourselves here this morning. As, a, as much as I would love to tell you that this is going to be a happy, upbeat message, I do have to paint the, the picture of this war and this enemy because the reality is that we all live in a very real war and there is a very real enemy. But I promise you that I will not leave you without hope this morning. That if you stick with me to the end, that you will walk out of this place with hope, knowing that victory is yours should you decide to pursue it. But like it or not, we're all born into a spiritual battle that's taking place all around us. It doesn't matter what your life looks like on the outside. It doesn't matter if things are going great for you. It doesn't matter if you have an amazing family and an amazing job, and maybe your Christmas was awesome. The reality is that there's still a war raging all around us, and we have to open up our eyes to the reality that the enemy is hunting for your soul. So my hope and my prayer this morning is that the Spirit would open up our eyes to this fight, that he would give us clarity and, and wisdom to be able to see who our enemy is, and that he would show us how to move forward and pursue victory over our enemy in this war. This is a two-part sermon. Uh, I'm going to paint the picture of the war here this morning, and next week, Pastor Ernie is going to share what it looks like to be a warrior in the midst of this war. And so you're going to want to pay attention to this message if you're going to be here next week. So with your Bibles open, let's go ahead and read our text for this morning out of Ephesians chapter 6. Starting in verse 10, it says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Father in heaven, 
God, we're thankful for your grace and mercy. God, we're thankful for your word. God, we just pray that you'd speak truth here this morning. God, that you would remind us of the war that is taking place, that you would remind us of who our enemy is, and God, that you would show us how to find our strength in you, in you alone. And so, God, this is all for your glory. Pray that you give me clear thoughts and articulate words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm gonna jump right into point number one here this morning, and that is that the war has been declared. War has been declared. This is the great implication of this text, right? Paul is saying, hey, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Why? Because the devil is real and he is scheming against you, right? Like he is, there are rulers and there are authorities and there's this, there's this crazy power over this darkness and there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Like the greatest implication of this text here this morning is that there, war has been declared. War has been declared. Every single one of us has been born into this war. And this is not just a war. This isn't just any war. This is the war. This is the war behind every war. It is the spiritual war. We're all born into it. And so I think I'm gonna use uh, chapter 12 of the Revelation to give us an, uh, just a glimpse into what this war looks like, and a glimpse into the war behind all wars. And I think, I think that Reve Revelation 12 shows us that war has been declared against God and against us, against every single member of the Trinity. And it's first been declared against the Father. In Revelation 12, verse 7, it says that war broke out in heaven. And Michael and his angels, right, the guardian Michael angel that's like all throughout the Old Testament, he's waging war, it says, against the dragon and his angels, and this is all in the heavenly places. Why? Because, because Satan wants God's throne. Satan wants God's throne. He, he wants to be God. And everything that Satan does is a counterfeit of what God does. And so he's trying to take God's throne. And so war breaks out in heaven. But good news, Satan gets bounced from heaven he can't get his hands on the Father, and so then what does he do? Well, then he makes war against the Son. Revelation also t tells us that the dragon stood before the woman who is a representation of Israel and the mother Mary. He stood before the woman who is about to give birth to Jesus so that when she bore her child, he may devour it. So the devil has declared war on Jesus. And we see this to be true, right? When Jesus was born, Matthew chapter two tells us that, that when Jesus was born, King Herod sought to destroy Jesus. And when he couldn't get his hands on Jesus, he had every male child under the age of two murdered. The dragon is trying to devour Jesus, but he can't get his hands on Jesus, right? Because Jesus dies and he ascends to the throne of God. He raises, he's risen again, he ascends to the throne of God, and so the enemy can't get his hands on Jesus. Just a side note, this is like a wildly different Christmas story than the one we 
we know, right? Like we're like Santa and presents and silent nights. Certainly wasn't a silent night, right? Like wars breaking out in heaven. So he can't get his hands on the father. He can't get his hands on the son. And so what does he do? He tries to get his hands on the spirit in the church. That's the third thing that he declares war on, the spirit in the church. You see, we the church, sons and daughters of God, have the indwelling Holy Spirit within us, and God doesn't, or, or Satan doesn't like that, he want, and so he makes war on the church. The offspring of God, Revelation 12, 17 says that the dragon became furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. You see, the devil's declared war on the church. He's declared war on the church. He can't get his hands on God. He's been bounced from heaven. Can't get his hands on Jesus. He knows he's gonna lose. He knows his time is short. And so what does he do? With every ounce of energy, every ounce of authority that he has, he raises up war against the people of God. This is why Paul says, man, get ready. Tap into the strength and power of your God. Put on God's armor because you're gonna need it. You're gonna need it. So war has been declared. We have to recognize that and we have to realize, man, we are, we're in this war, man, and the, and the dragon's out to get you, right? Like whether you know Jesus or not, like he's coming. I think the second thing that we need to know, point number two, we need to know and recognize who our enemy is. We need to know and recognize who our enemy is. The Apostle Paul says we don't war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so before I get into who our enemy is, I need to, I think we need to, to realize who our enemy is not, and that is flesh and blood. He says right here, we don't war against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. That's not our enemy. That means that your neighbor is not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your children are not your enemy. The people sitting next to you are not your enemy. Anthony Fauci is not your enemy, <laughs> right? Like President Biden is not your enemy. We do not war against flesh and blood. And man, if we could just get here this morning, right? Like if we just understand and grasp this truth, like how powerful would we be in pursuing freedom for our fellow man? There are people out there who are manipulated by the enemy, enslaved to their sin. If we could just grasp that they're not our enemy and we could fight for their freedom, like how powerful, like we'd counterpunch the devil in the face. So it's not flesh and blood that we war against. 
but it's the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil. We need to know and recognize our enemy. The first thing we need to recognize about him is that he's powerful. He's powerful. This is why Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. I think it's interesting. Nothing is called a ruler who does not rule. Nothing is called an authority who does not have authority. Nothing's called a cosmic power over present darkness that does not have some type of power over the present darkness. Nothing's called a spiritual force of evil who does not command forces. So we need to understand that our enemy is real and that he is powerful on a level that, man, we probably can't even fathom. Like if we could just for a minute just like look past all of the physical worldly nonsense and just kind of gaze for a minute into the spiritual realm, I think what we would see would terrify us to the point where we'd be like, man, I'm not gonna stand in my power. I love the story of the seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19. If you remember this story, there were these seven sons, they were Jewish exorcists, and uh, they see the apostle Paul and he's doing miracles and he's casting out demons and all this stuff. And they're like, man, I wanna get a piece of that. And so they find a man who was afflicted with an evil spirit. And they're like, I'm gonna try what Paul's doing. And they say, they go to the, to the man and they say to the evil spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus, Paul's God, to come out of him. And if you remember the story, the spirit answers back and he says, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but who are you? And I was listening to one commentator and he said this. He said, I don't know how you judge fights. Uh, oh, oh, it also says, ah, oh, jeez, I'm messing this up. This is great. This is the best part of the story. <laughs> the spirit beats them bloody and naked and, run, and they run out of the house, right? Beats them bloody and naked, run out, of, uh, run out of the house. Now, I don't know how you judge fights, but if you had pants on when you walked into that fight, and at the end of that thing, man, you weren't wearing any pants, brother, you lost, Right? I think this is, a, this is a perfect illustration of how powerful the enemy is. So he's powerful, but he's also cunning. This is why the Apostle Paul says, man, stand firm. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This idea of cunning, we don't use that word a lot. But it's the, it's the idea of someone who is systematic, focused, and orderly in order to deceive somebody else. Someone who is systematic, focused, and orderly so that he can deceive somebody else. I read a story this week of a woman who slowly poisoned her husband over the course of a year slowly poisoned her husband over the course of a year. She would line his food and drink uh, containers with thallium, which is one of the main poisons in, that they use in, in rat poison. And by the time that he died, a year later, 
he had over 900 times the lethal dose of thallium in his system. And authorities described this woman as being a focused killer who was systematic in what she did. Authorities even say that she intentionally ingested some of the poison herself and gave some to their four-year-old daughter in order to throw suspicion off of herself and onto her husband's co-workers. At the end of his life and on his deathbed, he was quoted as saying to a nurse, please help me, my wife is trying to kill me. She is not as she seems. This is cunning, This is cunning, and this is what the devil does. This is what our enemy does. He knows how to exploit our weaknesses. He knows our sin nature. He's a master strategist. He's cold, and he is calculated. He is willing to bide his time, like this woman who is willing to poison her husband over the course of a year. He is willing to bide his time. He orchestrates elaborate plans, and he hides in plain sight. Make no mistake, the devil will not, never let you know that it's him. He's not stupid, he's cunning, he's sinister. He's not gonna stamp 666 on your forehead for the world to see. Right, like who's gonna fall for that? Not me, devil, not me, I read my Bible. But what he will do is he will capture your heart and he'll capture the mind that exists behind that forehead of yours and he will slowly, systematically, focused and methodically carve his name into your affections and your desires and your thoughts until his ways are true and God is the liar. This is scary, guys. I love what Jackie Hill Perry says about Eve's deception at the mouth of the serpent and her subsequent sin. She says, at the moment Eve believed the word of the serpent, rebelling against the word of God, her misplaced faith reflected what she believed most about the holiness of God. To her, God, not the serpent, was the liar among them. He's cunning. He is deceitful. He will trick you into believing that the things you're doing are for righteousness and godliness, even on the side of God. And so we have to, we have to recognize that he is cunning. I think his cunning is seen in four main schemes. The first is accusation. Accusation, the enemy accuses he accuses us, right? He reminds us all the time that you and I are sinners, right? That we are condemned before God. That we are unworthy of being called a son or a daughter of God. He never ceases to remind you of the guilt of your sin and the shame that comes alongside with it. And he will accuse you day and night. But he also lies Right? He preaches lies into your heart and mind so that you'll begin to doubt. He'll tell you, man, you're just not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. Name your poison. 
You're not smart enough to know God's word, so you might as well just not read it. You're, you're not smart enough to know how to pray, so you might as well not try. Your sin is too great. The blood of Christ is not enough to cover everything you've done. These are the lies and the accusations of the enemy. Once he's preached his lies and once he's accused you, he will work to isolate you from the people of God. He will work to isolate you from the people of God. The Bible says the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I don't know if you've looked at how lions like kill their prey, but the herd doesn't even know the lion's there until it's already isolated the weakest member of the pack and started eating it. So he will try to isolate you. He'll threaten you with the intimidation of death once he's leveled his accusations, once he's preached his lies, once he's isolated you from the people of God, he will intimidate you with the threat of death so that you would just compromise. So our enemy is powerful, our enemy is cunning, and our enemy is wicked. That's why he's described in verse 12 as darkness and a force of evil. The exact opposite of Jesus, where Jesus brings light, goodness, and godliness to the world. The enemy plunges the world into darkness, hatred, and immorality, all while promising pleasure in the process. Revelation 12 says he pours a river from his mouth. I have to believe it's a river of accusation, a river of lies, a river of deceit, a river of condemnation, the exact opposite of the river of life that flows from Jesus Christ in Revelation 22. See, where Jesus brings life, the enemy brings death. He is completely wicked. He will take what is good and he will call it evil, and he will take what is evil and he will call it good, all while making you believe that you're on the side of justice and righteousness. He's powerful, he is cunning, he is wicked, and he operates on three main battlefields. And the first is the mind. You have to believe that your mind is a battlefield that the, that, that, that the devil will make war on. This is where he will deceive you. This is where he'll cause questions in your secret thoughts. Is God really faithful? Is he really all powerful? Is he really good? Eve in the garden, what did the, what did the serpent ask her? Did God really say? He'll cause questions in your mind. He also operates in the spiritual reality. I think this is important to remember because a, a huge part of Jesus's earthly ministry was casting evil spirits from people. There is a spiritual realm, guys. Like, where'd all the demons go? Sub-Saharan Africa? I, I think we live in a culture that has over-stimulated our minds into believing that, that everything must have a logical reason behind it. Like, there's not a hedge of protection around America. America. 
And then he operates, eventually, all of these things pour out into the physical reality. By operating in the mind and in the spiritual realm, the enemy's power, cunning, and wickedness spill over into the physical. And this is why we see the world in chaos and disarray. Because the enemy is waging war in the spiritual realm and in the hearts and minds of people. The physical realm is the last place to be affected, but it's the first thing that we see. So war has been declared. The enemy is real. We need to realize the ways that he works. He is powerful. He is cunning. He is wicked. And he operates on the battlefield of the mind, the spiritual realm, and the physical realm. But I think it's important for us to remember point number three, that victory is found in the strength of our God. Victory is found in the strength of our God. Yes, there is a very real war. Yes, there is a very real enemy. But listen to me, the victory is won. And you can have it if only you would pursue the strength of God. God's strength is found first in the blood of the lamb. God's strength is found first in the blood of the lamb. You see, the blood of the lamb overcomes the accusation of guilt and shame. Where the enemy tells you that you're guilty, where the enemy reminds you that you should be ashamed of all that you've done, the blood of of the lamb covers our guilt and wipes away the shame. We have to remember that. overcomes the accusation of guilt and shame and overcomes the accusation of condemnation where the enemy would remind you that your sin and your unworthiness before God, the blood of Christ shed for you on that cross reminds us of the unlimited power of your God and the reality that you cannot out the grace of God. You cannot outsend the grace of God. For you to believe that you could somehow outsend the grace of God is absolutely blasphemous, as if you were more powerful than God. Can't do it. Don't let the enemy preach you that lie. Where sin condemns, grace abounds all the more. There is therefore now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. God's strength is found in the blood of the lamb because it overcomes the fear of death where the enemy would tell you that death is final and hope dies with it. The blood of the lamb spilled on that cross and the risen savior reminds us that death is not final. Death is not final. He and he alone traded death for eternal life. The cross has the final word. He alone is the almighty God. There is no other. God's strength is found in the blood of the lamb, but it's also found in knowing the truth. If we are going to stand against the lies and the accusations and the condemnation of the enemy, if we're gonna stand against his cunning and his schemes, then we have to know the truth. We have to know the truth 
This is the greatest counter to the lies and half-truths that the enemy whispers into our ears. By knowing the truth of God's word, you see his strength on display. By knowing the truth of God's word, you're able to more readily identify the lies. By knowing the truth, it reminds you and everyone around you, those who are also in the fight, of what is true and what is false. And as you walk forward in the truth of God's word, you have the strength to withstand any of the devil's cunning lies and crafty deceit. God's strength is found in the blood of the lamb. It's found in knowing the truth. And finally, it's found in declaring his gospel. God's strength is found in declaring his gospel. See, the gospel ties everything together and gives us access to God and therefore his strength. See, without the gospel, we are accused. Without the gospel, we are condemned. Without the gospel, death has the final word. Without the gospel, the enemy wins. That means that our strength in this war is centrally located in the middle of the gospel. This is why the apostle Paul in Romans 1 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. Our strength is found in the gospel. His great redemption plan where sin would condemn us, the gospel saves us. Where the enemy accuses us, the gospel redeems us. Where sin promises death, the gospel promises life. And so God's strength and his power is found ultimately in the gospel. The gospel. That new, the, the, the good news, right? That God became a man, that he lived the life that we could never live that he willingly died your death and mine on that cross, that he rose again, trading death for eternal life, and that he ascended to the throne of God and is alive even now, and that all those who would abandon everything in pursuit of him will have eternal life. So we need to declare the gospel. We need to declare it first to ourselves and then to everyone out around us and always to the enemy. God's strength is found in the blood of the lamb. It's found in knowing the truth and it's found in declaring his gospel. So this week, I want you guys to write that gospel down like a three by five card or a piece of paper somewhere. I want you to carry it with you everywhere that you go. I want you to pull that gospel out and I want you to remind yourself what Jesus Christ has done for you. And then I want you to tune in next week to Pastor Ernie's sermon on what it looks like boots on the ground to war in this fight. But I wanna leave you this morning with these lyrics from one of my favorite worship songs. I just want to let these sink in and ring true in your heart and your mind this morning. It's from the song, The Cross Has the Final Word, says this, sorrow may come in the darkest night, but the cross has the final word. Evil may put up its strongest fight, but the cross has the final word. Because he traded death for eternal life, the cross has the final word. 
Father in heaven, God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the people who are here, who are watching online. God, I pray that they would not leave this place without knowing your hope. In Jesus' name.